every morning when I wake up, I can look out my front window and there's a set of street signs out there. And they say that I live on the corner of Tiara Strip and Linda Curve, outside of the fact that kind of a weird neighborhood with weird names. The fact is we all have a physical address. But, you know, I'll tell you what, there are some mornings when I get up, get up and I swear that those signs say that I'm living on the corner of Difficulty Street and Trouble Avenue. All right, you've had the same kind of days. You know, you just don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to face the day. You know, sometimes as God's people, we get ourselves into messes. We can really screw things up. And we have these days in which life just stinks. And the question really that we need to ask is, what keeps you going when you find yourself camped out on the corner of Difficulty Street and Trouble Avenue? What is it that gets you through those times in life? What is it that keeps you going when you're facing a tough time, when you've, when you've looked at that circumstance from every angle and you can just see no way out? What is it that gets you through? What is it that keeps you going? Well, the answer is found in a story. Uh, it's a story that inspires and encourages. It's a story that gets me fired up, even in the midst of ruins. But I have to warn you, it's a bizarre story, uh, rather disturbing, rather crude. And yet it's a story that teaches us something very, very powerful about the God we serve. It's a story found in the book of Judges. Uh, the ushers have uh, Bibles. I'll give them a chance to uh, bring them forward. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, just raise your hand. You'll see uh, they'll see that and get you a Bible. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3. I'll give you a chance to find it. I realize Judges is a, is a rather dark, kind of uncomfortable, hard to understand book, and it's probably not one you spend a lot of time in. Uh, so it may be a little hard to find, but... Uh, it's rather easy. It's at near the beginning of your Bible. It's right after the, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua and Judges. Uh, so we're going to look at Judges chapter 3. Let me set this up for you. You see, life in Israel stunk. Uh, imagine the worst day of your life. Now take that day, multiply it by 365. Uh, all right, you don't have to do the math. I've done it for you. Multiply that number by 18 and you get to 6,570 days of pure stink. That's what Israel faced. They've been facing 18 years of horrendous living, just this situation that they could see no way out of. And we're going to be introduced in a little bit to a main character in the story. His name was Ehud. And his name means, where is the splendor or where is God's majesty? It's a name that really summed up what Israel was facing what God's people were facing. So we need to ask, how did they get there? Before we jump into this story, how did they get there? Well, the book of Judges tells us the story of how God's people disintegrated, uh, how God's people weren't behaving very much like God's people should. Uh, they were uh, living a lifestyle that was contrary to what God had called them to, uh, they were living more like the immoral nations that surrounded them. They were engaging in those same immoral practices, uh, the same uh, kind of stuff that they were supposed to be different. In, in fact, there's a reoccurring phrase, sentence in Judges that says, the people of God were doing what was right in their own eyes, or they were doing what was wrong in the sight of God. That describes 
their circumstance. That describes what was going on. And we see this time and time again throughout Judges where the people turned away from God. And like any good father does with a a child that disobeys, God had to punish Israel. So he would do that by taking one of the neighboring nations around them and allowing, empowering that nation to come in and take over Israel and make Israel subject to that king, usually a cruel, oppressive ruler to that country for a period of time. So Israel had a problem. What is that problem? And that's our first point this morning. What is the problem we face? And it's a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. Uh, The Israelites were engaged in hardcore rebellion against God. And because of that, God put them in a rather hopeless situation. It's not unlike the same situations we face. It's not unlike the things that find you at the corner of Trouble Avenue and Difficulty Street. You know, your marriage. uh, Admit it, some of our marriages are a mess. They're in ruins. Why? Because... You don't have the courage to honor those vows that you made that says to love and honor and be faithful no matter the circumstances. Sometimes our finances get us into trouble. Every time the phone rings, you cringe, wondering, is it going to be the bank? Is it going to be a creditor? Because you haven't been very diligent in managing your finances according to God's plan, and you've missed the last two payments on your loan. You know, maybe it's your family. You know, there's got to be days that sometimes you wake up and think that your family resembles the Osbournes a lot more than it does the Cosbys. And it's because you're afraid to put your foot down and parent the way God calls us to parent. You're afraid that you're going to alienate your teenage son or daughter. And so we get into these messes that seem rather hopeless. And sometimes, sometimes it's not even our fault. It's that $500 emergency car payment bill that comes when you've just been laid off from your job of 12 years it's that teacher at school that boss that is just on your back all the time and you know it's because they know you're a follower of christ and they want to make your life miserable we get into hopeless situations that's the problem we all face that's the problem israel faced but the one thing that gets us fired up throughout this is to remember this as we go through this sermon, is that God is always at work even when things are dark. We're going to find that out. Let's take a look at Israel's situation. See what their hopeless situation was. Again, the book of Judges, we're in Judges chapter 3. Verse 12, and it starts right off with that phrase I talked about that's a reoccurring theme in Judges just a second. It says in verse 12, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. There is their hopeless situation. It says, how, let's move on. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Right there, that should be a big oh no to us. Because that shows the how bad this situation was. The city of Palms is the same city as it is also known by another name. We call it Jericho. And you remember a book earlier in Joshua was the very story when God promised Israel the promised land. The first city that they faced and the first city that they conquered was Jericho. 
Remember, they marched around it seven times, blew their trumpets, shouted, and the walls fell down, and they took possession of Jericho. Jericho was a symbol of God's sovereignty, of God's promise, of God's protection to the Israelite people. And now we find that Eglon had taken possession of Jericho. No longer was this a symbol of what God has done, but it was a symbol of how far Israel had fallen. It says, The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Eighteen years. What does it mean to be subject? Maybe we should explain that term. This wasn't just, oh, that this was a governor and he was making a few decisions. Uh, He ruled with an iron fist, so to speak. Uh, This would have involved uh, cruelty, uh, oppression. Uh, If Eglon said, jump, you jumped, or you lost your life. If Eglon decided he wanted one of your daughters for his court, or maybe to give to as a present to some other friend of his, he took your daughter. If Eglon decided he wanted your crops, he took your crops. He was a cruel and heartless dictator and ruler. And for 18 years, Israel lived under Eglon's power. For 18 years, they had to face this hopeless situation. They had a problem. But with every problem comes a solution. So what's the solution when we face a hopeless situation? It's simple. Turn to God. Turn to God. Verse 15, it says, Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ahud. Remember, Ahud, whose name meant, God, where is your majesty, was now to become an instrument of God's majesty. You know, just a side note, 13 times this pattern is found in the book of Judges, where the Israelites turned from God suffered and then turned back to God. Thirteen times. I'll tell you, if I was God, three strikes and you're out. But God is an amazingly merciful God who time and time again, when his people turned back to him, welcomed them back and delivered them. You see, whatever situation is you're in, it's never too far. You're never too far gone to turn back to God. Your marriage is never too far gone to ask for forgiveness and turn to God. He can deliver. Your financial situation, you're never going to be too far in debt that you can't turn to God, ask for forgiveness, make some changes, and He'll deliver. Your family situation is never going to be so bad that you can't turn to God and have Him deliver. Whatever circumstances you're in, God will deliver if you turn to Him. But there's something we really need to know about the way God delivers. You know, the story doesn't end there. There's a whole chunk of story here about how God delivered. And through that, we're going to learn an amazing truth about the way God works, even when things are dark. So let's jump in to the text. Again, we'll pick it up in verse 15, which I read. Again, the Israelites cried out to God, and he gave them a deliverer, Ahud, a left-handed man. Well, let's stop there. All right, we don't have just an ordinary deliverer. We have a left-handed deliverer. And you might be saying, okay, what's the big deal with that? Well, let me explain something about the way the Bible works and the way the writers worked. 
in our Western culture, and I don't know what authors you read, whether it's a John Grisham, a Tom Clancy, or maybe you're more into the classics like Charles Dickinson or Charles Dickens or Emily Bronte, but we're very used to Western literature being full of description and telling us all about the characters in the story. For instance, I just picked a passage from one of my favorite authors, Louis L'Amour. Uh, uh, it would read something like this. His face was lean and hard, triangular with high cheekbones, green eyes, and a strong jaw. His sideburns were long in the fashion of the time, his hair dark brown and curly. His skin was dark, his features normally without expression. James T. Kettleman had often been called a handsome man. He had never been called a friendly one. See, that's what we're used to. We're used to authors describing hair color, eye color, shirt color, physical features, but If you read much in the Bible, you realize that those details are few and far between. So when you see one, sit up and take notice. Because there are no throwaway lines in the Bible. Uh, There's no fluffiness at, at all to what we're reading. So there's an important reason that Ehud is described as left handed. And it's even heightened. The irony of this is that it says Ehud is the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Benjamites were a tribe descended from Benjamin, and the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. So you have a left-handed warrior from a tribe of right-handed people. And you're wondering, where is this going? What is going on here? But there's a reason that's in here. But then we find that the Israelites sent Ehud, sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. A tribute simply is like a tax. Well, more than a tax, it's an extortion. Okay, Eglon's like the bully that you pass on the way to school each morning that won't let you get by without giving up your lunch money. Uh, All right, so to keep Eglon happy as possible, they would often pay tribute, clothes, food, money, whatever it is. So obviously there's several men. This is a big kind of tribute uh, to get to Eglon. But before, we leave, before Ehud leaves, it says in verse 16, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, uh, swords, maybe not the best term here, because this was a little bit shorter than a sword, more like a dagger. Uh, in fact, the word that this, our Bibles translate cubit, or some of your Bibles say 18 inches, actually is the word, it's only used this one time in the Bible, and it probably refers to what they would have called a short cubit, something about actually 12 inches long. Uh, So we've got a dagger, a nice weapon designed for easy concealment, easy to wield, kind of a thrust and slice kind of thing, not a big uh, hack and stab kind of sword. You begin to wonder, what's going on here? They get a little bit of uh, intrigue here. What's, Eglin gonna, or what's Ehud going to do with that sword that he strapped to his right thigh? Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. All right, stop there. What in the world? Is it necessary to go to this socially, politically incorrect kind of phrase, poke fun at a fat person? Oh, we don't do that, do we? That's not right. But again, remember... There are no throwaway lines in Scripture. If the Bible gives you a physical description, there's a reason behind it. And we're going to find out what that means. As a side note, the name Eglon means calf. So we have a fat calf. What do you do with a fat calf? You lead it to slaughter. We're getting a hint here. Is the fat calf headed for slaughter? Is that where we're going with this? Well, let's find out. Verse 17, he... Ehud presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, 
who was a very fat man, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he dismissed those who had carried it. All right, wait a second. I thought we were headed for like the great climax here. The fat calf was going to get slaughtered. God's majesty was restored. It says, but he dismissed those. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, verse 19, and understand that uh, that was just a, that was just to symbolize a borderline between Israel and Moab, a uh, place where there was uh, uh, obviously some idol set up, whatever. Uh, Ehud, on reaching those, Ehud went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. That, mess, that word that is translated message is actually a Hebrew word that means a word, a thing. Maybe better translated is, in our English language, is something. So Ehud goes back and says, Eglon, I have a secret something for you. Well, you know what that something is, right, don't you? Eglon doesn't, though. We know what that secret something is. And he's, Eglon's tantalized by just kind of the mystery of this word. What is it? What could this man have? And then Eglon does something really, really stupid. Uh, he says to his attendants, verse 19, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Ups the ante a little bit, promises that there's uh, a little more to it than just a secret something. It's a secret something that comes from God. Uh, little does the fat calf realize, right? So here you have mountainous fat Eglon and the left-handed warrior Ehud. The left-handed warrior Ehud with the dagger strapped to where? His right thigh. Now, probably, I'm guessing none of you handle swords on a daily basis. I, I think that's safe to assume. That's just not part of our jobs. So you might not realize what's going on here. But typically, a right-handed warrior is going to strap his sword to his left side because it's easier to pull out. You don't hurt yourself, okay? So Ehud, being left-handed, is going to strap that dagger on his right side. Now, when Ehud went through airport security with his TSA-approved three-ounce bottle of shampoo, uh, they would have been looking on that left side for that telltale bulge. They would have done maybe a quick pat-down to see if there's any weapon in there. And they found nothing, so they assumed that it was safe to let Ehud in. What they didn't realize is that he was a left-handed guy. They expected a right-handed warrior. And then we get all the action. Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, 20, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. And right here, some of our translations chicken out, and they say that the point came out the back. Uh, wrong. Better translation is, and the king's bowels discharged. Eglon spilled his guts. All right. Uh, a little translation would be the dirt came out. Uh, said Ehud did not pull the sword out. Yeah, I'll give you a moment to let that sink in. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him, locked them. Verse 24 the story gets just kind of crude. Um, I thought it was crude before, but it says, After he had gone, the servants came, found the doors of the upper room locked, and they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. 
So you've got these guards on the one side of the door, and they're smelling what Eglon spilled, and they're assuming that the king is, uh, well, shall we say, sitting on his other throne. Uh, they're out there on the other side of the door praying for things like a courtesy flush or a lit match, all the while not realizing that their king has expired on the floor. They have mistaken the smell of death for the smell of their king going to the bathroom. And they're embarrassed about it. And verse 25 says, They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. In the meantime, Ehud escapes. It says, While they waited, Ehud got away. You've got to ask, what in the world is going on? What in the world was God thinking, including such a bizarre crude, disturbing story in his holy scriptures. What was God thinking? Uh, certainly, the, it's not for us to emulate Ahud and start assassinating people that make our life miserable. Uh, we know that's not the case. That would go against what God wanted us. So why include this story? Why elaborate on how Ahud delivered? Well, that's the point. What's the point of this story? Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. See, we serve a God who is known for his constancy. We worship a God who is constant, his love, his mercy. It never changes day after day, year after year, century after century. God does not change. But God is not boring. God is not boring. You know, God looks for and delights in surprise, in the unexpected. He looks for ways to deliver his people in unexpected ways. He did it through a left-handed warrior from a right-handed tribe, a king tantalized by a secret message, and two servants who mistook the smell of death for the, mis the, mistook the smell of death for the smell of a king going to a bathroom. That's how God delivers. God delivers his people in unexpected ways. You see, when you don't see any way out of your situation, God can deliver you in the most unexpected ways. You know, that's how God does it. That's how God does it. If you look in the Bible, you'll find story after story of how God delivered in an unexpected way. You remember the story of Moses and the ark, don't you? The Israelites were subject to the Pharaoh's control they were slaves and the pharaoh was getting a little bit worried that these israelites would get too big and too powerful and overthrow his kingdom so he ordered that all the baby boys in israel be killed well there was one person that wasn't going to go through with that and that was moses's mother and so she built a little ark that's the term in the scripture she built a little ark out of bulrushes she put moses in it and floated him in the river so, the, so the, the Egyptian guards wouldn't find him and kill him. And through that, the Pharaoh's daughter found Moses. She took him in as her own. She raised him up in the courts, taught him, gave him the things that he would need as he would eventually go on and deliver God's people from the Egyptian oppression. What about the story of Esther? God used a king's insomnia to deliver his people. 
the Israelites were in danger of being exterminated. There was a guy named of Haman who was single-handedly going to wipe them out. He had a beef with a guy by the name of Mordecai, who was a Jew. And because of that, he said, all Jews must go. One night, the king couldn't sleep. So he was reading the minutes from his board meeting to try to put him to sleep. And he came across a case, a record of an assassination attempt on his life that had been thwarted. And he asked, was the man who stopped that, has he ever been rewarded? And the answer was no. And he said, well, we must honor this man. And that man turned out to be Mordecai, the very man that Haman, the king's right-hand man, was trying to kill. So through a king's insomnia, God flipped the tables on Haman. Haman was the one that lost his life on the gallows. And Mordecai was placed in a position of power. And the Israelites were saved. What about in the New Testament? Think about how God spread the message in the early church. The early church was faced with a terrorist, a guy by the name of Saul, who was going to do whatever he could to kill people that professed the following Christ. But through an important meeting that Saul had with Jesus Christ, he became the Apostle Paul, and that very terrorist who wanted to wipe out Christianity became the very person who ensured the spread of the gospel in the early church. He planted churches. He converted thousands. And what about the greatest delivery of all? How did God meet the deepest needs of humanity? He did it by becoming human himself. He did it by coming to earth. He did it by enduring a shameful death on a cross. He did it through his son, Jesus Christ. It was the most amazing unexpected, surprising delivery of all. You see, that's God's mode of operation. That's how God works. When you don't see any way out of your circumstances, God will deliver you in the most unexpected way. You know, that's the insight about God's character that you need to latch onto this morning. It's the insight about God's character that will get you through the tough times. You know, that's the truth that will help you cope. When your marriages hit the rocks, that's the truth that will help you cope with that. Uh, When your unemployment stretches to months to years, when your financial situation seems hopeless, that's the truth that will help you cope. God delivers in unexpected ways. He's working even when situations are dark. You know, when the splendor is gone, again, an Ehud moment, when the splendor is gone, that's what helps us cope. You know, one word of caution. This isn't a blanket guarantee that, um, you know, God's going to, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Um, You know, but this passage teaches us how God delivers, that he delivers in surprising ways. You know, not how and when we want it. And maybe not even till the very end when Christ comes back. But it keeps us going when life is tough. It keeps us going when life is tough. It teaches us not to give up. And remember, God delivers his people in the most unexpected ways. Before I was born, my parents were serving in a church uh, on the coast of Oregon, a little town called Idaville. It was near Tillamook. You may recognize that name from the cheese. Uh, and uh, just north of them was a small town called Manzanita. While they were there, there was a, a couple that moved into Manzanita. 
with the desire to plant a church in Manzanita. There was no churches there. The people didn't have any means uh, of no contact with, with, with no churches, no gospel, no nothing. And this couple had a desire uh, to plant a church in Manzanita. So they moved in to Manzanita, Oregon. Shortly after they were there, not came on the door, uh, came to the door. They opened up the door, and there was a rough-and-tumble logger standing at the door. His name was Charlie. And he shoved a piece of paper in their face, and he said, See this? This is the town charter. It says, A church will never exist in Manzanita, Oregon. I'm giving you six months to get out or else. And Charlie named a day. He said, On this day, you better be out or else I'm coming for you. Every week, Charlie would return, say, you've got five months and three weeks, five months and two weeks, or else, five months, one week, five months, four months. And this went on. And this couple was wondering, what do we do? But they had such a desire to plant a church and to minister, get the word gospel out to the people of Manzanita, Oregon, that they were willing to stick it out in the face of a hopeless situation. Charlie kept coming back, and soon it was down to 12 weeks or else, 11 weeks, 10 weeks, 9 weeks, 8 weeks, 7 weeks, 6 weeks, 5 weeks, 4 weeks, 3 weeks or else. With 2 weeks left, Charlie was killed in a logging accident, and to this day, there is a healthy church in Manzanita, Oregon. God delivered those people in an unexpected way. You know, a few years ago, I found myself in what I would consider an Ahood moment. I was camped out on Difficulty Street and Trouble Avenue. I'd, I'd made, I gotta confess, I'd made some stupid financial decisions. And then I got laid off from my job. And it was a good job. And after that, I just found things, it was a spiral. It was downward. Uh, and I really, it, it felt hopeless. I, I found myself stuck in a dead-end, minimum-wage job. I wasn't able to pay bills. I was going nowhere but backwards. And it seemed hopeless. A couple of job opportunities I thought I had fell through. I had nowhere to go. And then God, I felt like God was piling it on because my father got cancer. And I wondered, God, where is your majesty in all this? I was crying out to God, turning to God day after day. What's going on here? Then I'll never forget a phone call I took at work that uh, one day. And it was an offer of a job that I didn't even know existed. It was a position that I had no experience whatsoever in. The manager of this organization happened to be a childhood acquaintance of mine. And he said when later he told me when this job came open, your name popped into my head and I had to call you. Well, I soon found myself working for WBNH Radio, a local Christian radio station, the very job that I worked until I joined the staff at Harvest. In the six years that I worked there, I was able to pay down and eliminate all the debt I had accumulated I had the privilege of being able to stay at home for the final eight months of my dad's life and help take care of him. And it didn't cost me a cent. I had the freedom to come and go and to be there and not lose a dime of my pay. 
God delivered in a most unexpected way. And to top it all off, that's where I met my amazing wife was through my job. God was good. He delivered in an unexpected way. When I could see no way out, when I wondered, have I made so many mistakes that I'm, I was counseled to file bankruptcy? I wondered, am I ever going to get out of this? I never expected a phone call. I never expected a job in radio. God delivered. And see, that is how the God we serve works. He delivers you in unexpected ways. You know, the Apostle Paul put it this way in the book of Romans 8, chapter 28, or chapter 8, verse 28. I'm sorry, you know the, you know the, the scripture. And we know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God. Place your trust in God. Turn to God. And you can have hope in your marriage, even when it seems hopeless. You can have hope in your finances, even when the bills are piling up. You can have hope in your family, even when your kids rebel. God is working behind the scenes for your good. He's working behind the scenes for your deliverance, sometimes in very strange, very bizarre circumstances. So when you look around at your circumstance, when you have looked at that from every angle and you see no possible way out, keep your hope up. Don't despair. Don't give up. Because that's when God shows up and delivers us in very unexpected, often surprising ways. You see, the very God who said, I think I'll get Moab off of Israel's back through a left-handed warrior who doesn't a king who was tantalized by a secret and escaped because the king stunk up a bathroom, that very God will somehow, some way, and at some time, deliver you in the most surprising way. That is the God we serve. That is the thing that gets us through the tough times. God is at work even when things are dark. Even when your life is at its lowest, God is still working. And if you turn to him, he will show up and he can deliver you even when you least expect it. Expect the unexpected. Let's pray.